entirety of Revelation 7, all 17 verses. We'll throw in the first verse of chapter 8. We'll also take the Lord's Supper just after the sermon for all baptized believers. May this be a testimony to your opportunity for the gospel and baptism should you not currently be a baptized believer. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, this gathering will amount to nothing if you don't bless it. We exist to bring you glory, and we are here today to express your glory in the presence of many witnesses and to share your gospel of hope with anyone who's not yet received it and certainly to encourage all of us who have. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're coming again, that you're going to make all things new, that you'll separate the sheep from the goats, and that we need to be found ready. We want to be among those sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Show us how today, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. An interlude is a pause between acts in a play. Something you might see performed or administered during an intermission at a theater. It does not necessarily further the plot. It certainly relates to the theme of what's going on. And it may refer back to something earlier in the plot. It may be related, not necessarily sequential. It can be thought of as a pause. It is an interlude. Revelation 7 is an interlude. Think of an interlude like in a religious worship service such as that we are at today. It can take the form of a short, simple, musical piece. Our worship team has led us beautifully so far today. From time to time, they will offer a short interlude, a pause, a dramatic reflection, an opportunity. An interlude is designed to give your mind a break from the sequential story in order for you to more fully appreciate the big picture of the whole thing, the whole story. And that is precisely what chapter 7 is designed to do. In fact, Revelation is such a beautiful picture. It is so action-packed that there are three interludes in Revelation. We see it in chapter 10 and 20. We also see it here today, of course, in chapter 7. This interlude explains the place of the saints in the events in Revelation. And we need to know our place in the events of Revelation, don't we? The English Standard Version Study Bible, which we recommend to you, we offer it at our bookstall, said this, it said, As with the Egyptian plagues recorded in Exodus, so the seals and trumpets and bowls of Revelation relate only to the unregenerate sinners. It's for the goats, it's not for the sheep. These plagues, these, rather the plagues of old, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, relate to the sinners. We don't want to be against God and rebellion to God on the day in which we meet Him. But this interlude explains the place of the saints. Chapter 7 helps believers appreciate this big picture of what God's doing. It helps us to see the big picture between the unfolding of the seals from the scroll. There are seven of them. Between the sixth and seventh parts, or seals, we take this break and we kind of jump back into a description, an interlude that is a description more reminiscent of the fifth seal recorded in Revelation 9 through 11. If you were to glance down at your Bibles in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, which I would encourage you to do if you're already turned to Revelation 7. It's an easy look. It's just on the other page. And what it says is, Then he opened the fifth seal, and he saw the altar of the souls, those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. And so this is, um, this is those that have gone on. They've died before us. They're in the intermediate state. And that seems to be the context of chapter 7. In fact, when we finish chapter 6, the great judgment was imminent. People wanted to disappear rather than face the white-hot wrath of God, so they hid themselves. As we preached and talked about last week, they would have rather ceased to exist, which wasn't an option for them, rather than face the wrath of the God that they had so rejected. Chapter 6, verse 17 ends that chapter from last week 
with, for the great day of the wrath has come, and it ends with a question. Who can stand? Chapter 7 does answer that question by referring back to the people mentioned in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, to those that are sealed for the day of the Lord. Who can stand? Only the Lord's people. Chapter 7 speaks of these believers in this interlude. Our text today fits neatly into two traditional Christian theological categories about the church. If you're ready, here is how we're going to examine this text today. Number one is the church at war. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And number two is the church at peace. This is chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Number one is the church at war, chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. You can listen for the breaks in the text, breaks for understanding as I read the text momentarily. And number two is the church at peace, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Traditional categories would be the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant think armies, soldiers, arrayed, battalions, consists of a specific number of believers on earth who struggle as soldiers of the Lord. The struggle is against the devil and the devil's works against sin, engaging in spiritual warfare, war. We need to accept and realize as believers that we are in a war and we must put on the weapons of warfare that the Lord provides us spiritually, as is mentioned in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. The offensive weapon is the Word of God itself. The defensive armor of God is described there in that epistle. We must put on the armor of God and go to battle, particularly against our sin. We need to accept this view of the world by faith so we can place our energies and fire our arrows in an effective direction. Otherwise, we could live a life as a professing Christian that's functionally AWOL from the battle lines. The church militant, the specific number at war, is representative of the multitude of believers in all time that will join together in the church triumphant, which is what the second part of this text is about. The church triumphant is rejoicing exceedingly and eternally, exuberantly in the glory of God. He receives glory. We are sealed to the praise of His glory. And chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 describes what John looked and saw after he had heard The chain of salvation is complete in heaven. Even before the final judgment and the bodily resurrection of the dead, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 describes the intermediate state that occurs after your death. And chapter 8 will take us back to the storyline of the Lamb, opening the seventh part of the scroll of God's unfolding plan. It's a breathtaking affair. In fact, we'll find heaven going silent as we see the cyclical expression in revelation of what's to come, rather than a sequential, more of a picture than a puzzle. But for now, just for today, let's look only at chapter 7, and let's look at the church at war and peace in life and death. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until, until, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, or Jacob. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And now, 
The second section of our text, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the creatures and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. You can go ahead and say it with me. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, and me as the Apostle John, the author of Revelation, saying to John, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John said to them, to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the ones coming out of the great, the complete tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Consider that spin cycle in your washer. White by blood. Only the gospel does that, right? Figurative language, amen? Look at verses 15 to 17 to conclude the reading of our text today. And then we'll seek to understand it and apply it. It says in verse 15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Let me hear may say, dwell with them. The concept of tabernacling with them. Verse 16, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're going to hear that again, aren't we? Now look at verse 1 of chapter 8 briefly. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, He's the only one worthy to open it. Remember chapters 4 and 5. Remember the throne room scene of heaven. The Lamb moving to the center of the drama. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So before the silence in heaven, that's the title of today's sermon, we have this interlude, this international Israel, this interlude, this parenthesis that shows the church militant and the church triumphant. Know how we need this text to help us to remain the church focused on our battle and the church looking forward to our victory by our great hero whose name is Christ. So number one. Let's consider verses 1 through 8, the church at war, or the church militant. And I want you to notice mainly in this text that God numbers and never forgets His people. Never. Explore this heavenly seal. As the seals are unfolding, consider how God's people are sealed as His sheep to the great shepherd. God never forgets His people, past or present. What a wonderful promise for us. The church on earth, the church militant. Consider again chapter 7, verse 1. This four, reminiscent of the four in chapter 6, are being allowed to hold back the wind. Imagine this picture of these strong, angelic figures standing and holding back. The total destruction of the enemies of God not yet happening. There is this time where God gets as Charles Spurgeon said, like the hound of heaven, he hunts down all that are his. And all that are his will repent and believe. They'll have faith in the risen Son. And they'll be sealed. They'll be saved. The chain of salvation theirs. Speaks of the angel ascending to the rising sun of the seal of the living God. Calling out in a loud voice. And these in absolute subservience to the sovereign. And they cannot harm the order of things, until the time is complete. This scroll is representative of the divine plan of God. And verse 4 says, 
that John heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Now, we are not Jehovah's Witnesses. We do not heretically believe that this was fulfilled in the 1940s. This is, with any thinking, a symbolic number of completion. The same as seven has been a symbolic number of completion in Revelation throughout so far. We understand seven as the complete number of days of the week. So we can understand 144,000 as a complete number. Think of a thousand as a complete millennial number. Think of 12, the 12 tribes of Israel as the complete number number of the people of God under the Old Covenant. We've already aforementioned considering the twelve apostles as a symbol for the complete people of God under the New Covenant. We are the people of God. Let me give you a few reminders from the epistles of the New Testament to help strengthen this case. Galatians chapter 6 verse 16 refers to the church at Galatia as the Israel of God. Romans 2, 28 and 29 asks who is to be considered a Jew. And the answer is the believers. Romans chapter 11, believing Gentiles are grafted in to the Israelites and unbelieving Jews are cut off. In Ephesians 2, Jews and Gentiles are now considered one, a single believing Israelite people. Philippians is addressed to a Gentile place, the church at Philippi. And in that address, in chapter 3, verse 3, the people are described as the authentic or the real circumcision, the sign of the Old Covenant. Galatians 3, 7, people of faith are the true sons of Abraham. We have the promises of Abraham. Galatians 3, 29 says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, his children, Heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promises mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 12 and following. Hebrews, chapter 8. God establishes the new covenant with the house of Israel. Who is in the new covenant? But us, the believers in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 22, Christ says, The cup we drink poured out for you, such as that we take, in the Lord's Supper, even today after the message, it is the new covenant in Christ's blood. Whom is this new covenant made for? Only for the house of Israel. This means everyone who believes is a part of God's people. The Israel of God. Do you believe? Do you believe? This 144,000 is addressed addressed to us all. It is a specific number connoting that every single person in the Lord will be counted and never forgotten. The whole church on earth during the whole time of the new covenant. The way these tribes are listed is similar to the way that the tribes are listed in the book of Numbers. If you were to go back and study in Numbers 1, 2, and 3, you would see similarities. And there in Numbers, to jog your memory, was the people of God described as an army going out to war, to war for the promised land. There is a literary connection here. Revelation 7 seems to be saying that this, the people of God, the church, is the army of God. We fight with weapons not made by human hands. We war against sin. We endure Satan's attacks. And we persevere by God's grace. I really appreciate this train of thought having been brought to me by Pastor Tom Hicks out of Louisiana. He does a wonderful job. I urge you to track down his sermon on Revelation 7 to this score. But we must move on for our sermon time today. Consider yet here what what this listing in these names might mean for us today. For example, look at chapter 7, verse 5. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. If you were carefully considering the entirety of the Bible and biblical theology, you might expect Reuben to come first. You might expect the firstborn to be first, not the fourthborn, Judah. And so you should ask, well, why? Why is Judah first? Well, the answer is embedded in Revelation itself. Jesus 
is in Revelation 5 described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 says that John hears and then looks. Why are the sons of Jacob's concubines listed here? Asher and Gad and Naphtali. Why are they brought up the rung in this list as compared to the Old Testament listings? You should ask why. I would submit to you that even outcasts, such as these children of the concubines, are incorporated in God's people, such as was with Jonah and that which was the sign of Jonah. The message was to go to an international people and even, yes, to Gentiles, to non-ethnic Jews. This is the beautiful, mysterious surprise of the New Testament, is that we are offered salvation that is rooted in the promises made to Abraham millennia ago. You should ask questions as a Bible student when you are reading this list. Who's missing? Why is Dan and Ephraim left out? When you ask the question why, you might remember Judges 18. You might remember places in the Old Testament that describe what happened under the reign of Jeroboam in the so-called northern kingdom. These tribes set up golden calves. They were idolatrous. And no unrepentant idolater will be listed among the people of God. And so you see here, the tribe of Manasseh mentioned, but not Ephraim, not Dan. You might ask, why is Joseph mentioned? Joseph is mentioned instead of simply his children. And if you look and see, he's listed nearer the bottom, right above Benjamin, 12,000 and 12,000. The shortest explanation of the listing of Joseph and the listing of all these names is that it is representative of God's people. Not the apostate, but those that love their Lord. Whether they lived a life in the past looking forward to the Messiah that would come, whether they lived a life in the past to looking back at the Messiah that came and would come again, the people of God are sealed as one, and specifically, down to a number, we won't be lost. Think of Ephesians chapter 1 for just one place where this score is settled. It says this in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that same salvation that belonged to the Lord in Jonah 2.9, it's mentioned in Revelation 7, when you heard the gospel the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it. What happened to you when you believed it, friend? Beloved, what does it say happened to you when you believed it? You were what? Sealed. The same word that's used in Revelation, liberally. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Ghost. You were regenerated. Saved. Sealed. Verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 says, who is the guarantee, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it, possession of it. And all of this chain of salvation, this sealing of God's people, is for our glory? No. It's to the praise of His glory. That's why we sing to the praise of His glory. It's about Him. Note then that all are sealed. I love the good old gospel religion, don't you? Sealed for the day of the Lord, to the praise of His glory. Charles Spurgeon wrote this in his daily devotional faith's checkbook. He said, Do I make the honor of God the great object of my life and the rule of my conduct? If so, He will honor me. I may for a while receive no honor from man, but God will Himself put honor upon me in the most effectual manner. In the end, it will be found the surest way to honor, to be willing to be put to shame for conscience' sake. Who deserves the honor? Is it me? Is it you? Or is it He? Isn't it Him? Let's exist to give glory where glory is due, and to return honor where honor is due. 
as Romans tells us to do. Let us not be honor seekers, but let's be honor givers. This text tells us that what goes around comes around with regard to honor, for we'll see later in this text how the servants are served, how the one that's given honor perfectly takes care and provides for his people. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's simply seek today to be sincere with Jesus in a way that the chief priests and the scribes were not. Let's not try to trap Jesus in his words with some perception of craftiness. We'll never be able to catch him. Instead, let us be the sheep that trust Jesus and communicate with him in sincerity and in good faith. Let us be the ones that walk with him and trust him. Trust is a big problem, isn't it? I was reading in my Bible study this week in the book of Exodus. This is where I am in the McShane plan at this juncture in the year. It's describing life in between deliverance and the promised land and how it's marked by troubles and whatnot. But it's still secure for God's people. Named, identified, not lost track of. The instance in question is Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, if you want to track it down later. Water was in short supply, and Israel grumbled against Moses. They said hurtful things like, Why would you even bother delivering us out of Egypt if we're going to die of thirst in this wilderness? With people on the brink of violence, the Lord instructed Moses to strike the rock at Horeb and watch water come out so all the people could drink. Exodus notes that Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which meant testing and quarreling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Surely the Apostle Paul had this story in mind when he instructed the church at Philippi to do all things without grumbling and disputing. The application is we too must learn to trust God in our times of thirst. Our sinful tendency is to grumble, to say, hurtful things, and even become angry when we have a need. How irritable we are, but Corinthians says love is not to be irritable. It's patient and kind. It doesn't boast. It doesn't envy. How disrespectful it is when we quarrel, grumble, or become violent in our times of thirst. How upsetting to the Lord it must be when we His people test Him in a manner that doubts His very presence among us. Is the Lord among us or not when times get tough? We must take our needs to Him and learn that in sure and certain hope we exist. And we exist as the Lord's army making war against sins, even sins of insecurity that manifest themselves in all sorts of petty and pugilistic manner. Consider your children, friends if you're of age to have them, or be of age where your friends have them. Let us not leave a lasting memory of complaint among those who are following in our footsteps. Friends, your salvation is far too secure for you to act so insecurely. Revelation 7 is a testament to this security that you can operate within in Christ. This is the church at war. But the church at war will become the church at peace. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 for the information. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the church at peace. Verses 9 through 17 talk about it. When we read the Bible, we understand that God has accomplished our salvation for us, that we can't accomplish our own salvation. And any good systematic theology will explain how the salvation that has been accomplished through Christ's work is then applied to believers. The systematic theology that we recommend out in the hallway, or at least provide, there are others I would recommend to be sure, 
but a very accessible systematic theology many of you have secured copies of is Wayne Grudem's Blue Systematic Theology. It's well over a thousand pages. In Grudem's theology, it covers the church and eternity future as it covered the doctrines of Word, God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. In one point in the systematic theology, Grudem orders things theologically to discuss redemption, not only as it has been accomplished, but then applied to believers like me and you. He explains that not all grace is common, but some grace is special. So election and reprobation, sheep and goats, are part of God's eternal decree. He explains the gospel call and the unbroken chain of salvation that's talked about and taught on in Revelation chapter 7 here. The chain of salvation including regeneration, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, sealed for the day. Also, the manifestations of conversion, such as faith and repentance, of justification, being forensically made right in God's eyes, of being adopted into membership in God's family, of sanctification, which is only completed at the point of your death, being baptized in and filled with the Holy Spirit, and perseverance and death and glorification and union with Christ. Under Grudem's explanation of death, he then explains the intermediate state. And what he explains is important for us today to grasp, beloved. He explains that death is the final outcome of living in a fallen world. To summarize dozens and dozens of pages of quality theology, he summarizes that death completes our sanctification, unlike the unbelievers. He summarizes, I summarize what he writes, that souls go immediately into God's presence. So we don't believe in purgatory or the doctrine of annihilationism to cease to exist or soul sleep even between death and the bodily resurrection. We are very conscious, very conscious. So we should not pray for the dead. Unbelievers go immediately to eternal punishment. Old and New Testament believers enter immediately into God's glorious presence. In the context of the intermediate state between when you die and when the seventh seal is opened, Grudem explains something important. He references Hebrews 11 and 12, and he correlates it with Revelation 6 and 7, clearly showing the souls or spirits of those who have died and have gone to heaven praying and worshiping, for they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? That's Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. And they are seen standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. We see in our text today in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, as I just read. All of these passages deny the doctrine of soul sleep. They make it clear that the souls of believers experience conscious fellowship with God in heaven immediately upon death. This should encourage you. No man knows the hour of the day of their own death. But for those of you that surmise that you've got far more days in the rearview mirror in this life than you do to be expected, this should be a major encouragement to you. Retirement age... Seniors, I specifically think of you with this comment. Good biblical theology rooted in verses like Revelation chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rooted in passages like that is that when you die, you will experience conscious fellowship with God immediately upon your death. Now this is a glorious truth for you as a believer as a person operating in sincerity with your divine ruler. It is a petrifying, paralyzing truth for those of you operating with insincerity and playing games with our ruler, with our creator. For the unbelieving goats will be cast from the presence and immediately, without any break, without any limbo, Eternal punishment will ensue, and you will await final punishment the same as we await final glorified bodies. The intermediate state is not purgatorious, and it's not sleepy. Grudem writes aptly, 
regarding the church. He explains that we are one body in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. We are not simply in Christ as isolated persons, individuals alone. Since Christ is the head of the body, which is the church, Ephesians 5.23 says, all who are in union with Christ are also related to one another in Christ's body. This joining together makes us, quote, one body in Christ and individually members one of another, 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 12.5 say. Thus, if one member suffers, all suffer together, Corinthians says. If one member is honored, all rejoice together, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12. The ties of fellowship are so strong that Christians are instructed to only marry in the Lord. Those three words, in the Lord, are how Christians are to marry, 1 Corinthians 7.39 says. Because the ties of this fellowship in one body are so strong. In this body of Christ, old hostilities disappear, sinful divisions among God's people are broken down, and worldly criteria of status no longer apply. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 and Ephesians 2.13-22. Aren't you glad for God's international plan of salvation? You have more in common with a Christian in Ethiopia or Thailand than you do with an unbeliever in Evansville or Terre Haute. This needs to get in there and in here. When you step foot in the throne room of heaven, you are going to see an international, unified body. We must pray for it. We must be warring for that cause that every nation would have access to the gospel, to the word of truth in their mother tongue. We are not beholden to Arabic. And we aren't even beholden to Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic because God has seen fit to give us opportunity to translate His words into the language of the people. Let us join this effort. Let us study organizations like the Voice of the Martyrs and Operation World and Tyndale Bible House and the like. The Wycliffe Bible Translators. Let us be a people that takes seriously our part in the unfolding plan of God. There is no small part. God's made you significant. Amen? Because we are one body in Christ, entire churches can be considered and called in Galatians and Thessalonians in Christ. And the church universal, the church made up of all believers, is collectively united to Christ as a husband is united to his wife. That's why what our service leader read earlier from our statement of faith, the lengthy reading is so important because our relationship with our Lord is described in marital terms. Christ as a husband to his wife, Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. Christ's purpose is to purify the church. Think of white robes, Revelation 7. It's to purify the church. This is Christ's purpose. So that we might be more complete in our reflection of what he is like. And therefore bring glory to him, but also witness faithfully to the watching world. Because trust me, they're watching. We want to reflect increasingly the purity that Christ is making us into. And we will be when our sanctification is complete, when we die and meet him. Listen to me, friends. If you are haphazard in turning away from sins of impurity, be haphazard no more. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. We are His people, and we are prone to wander. But when we wander into impurity, 
we are compelled by His love to return, to repent, and to walk in purity. Let us not be AWOL in this army. Let's not be busy with unspiritual things. Let us pursue holiness as the church at war until we are the church at rest. The purification symbolized by these white robes, these white clothes after death in the intermediate state is what we have to come. And we should want it now. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne. They're worshiping God, you see. In verse 12, they say, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. There's sevenfold blessing again here. Again, the symbolism of completion of seven. Watch the, the seven descriptive words. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Be to our God, how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Unending praise. So this practice praise now that we're doing, as sincere as it is, it's important. I mean, this is spring training for the eternal season of heaven, of praise, and for the new heavens and the new earth. It says in uh, verse 13, it's very interesting, I think. It's, um, it's, a, it's a question asked by an elder in heaven, but the elder already knows the answer. You might think of it like catechism, you know, when you're trying to instruct your children or when you're new to the faith and you're being instructed, sometimes the instructor, in this case the elder, will ask a question that he already knows the answer to because one of the great ways in which we learn is to answer questions. Jesus did this a lot, didn't he? He would ask questions. In fact, Italian won a lot of his debates was with questions that folks couldn't answer in, without incriminating themselves. They asked questions about David and all sorts of ethical issues as they tried to trap him. Well... This is a question. It's a good question. You'll know them by the quality of their questions. The elder asks John, John the Apostle. Remember, he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He's going through a tribulation all his own. And he asks John, he says, Who are these people that you're now seeing, that you've heard? Who are these people? And John says, Sir, Lord with a little L, Kurios, Sir, you know, you know. And the elder said to John, as if almost to say to us, as we're peering into this story and this holy writ, these are the ones coming out of the great or the complete tribulation. Now John 16.33 describes how we all are in a time of tribulation between the first and second coming of Christ. I see no reason to see this great tribulation as a simple small period of time for a small select people. We live in tribulation, and however bad it gets before the second coming of Christ, and it may in fact go from bad to worse, what we need to know is that we come out of this great tribulation, and that this is a record of those that are coming out of the great tribulation, not those that have come, but those that are coming. These are the ones coming out of, in increasing proportion, totally numbered in God's eyes, but innumerable in our eyes, to, to, to look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, and then chapter 7, verse 9 and following. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And what, what's the description of these coming out of the great tribulation? These are the ones that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A clearly figurative language, right? Clearly figurative language. But these are the ones, to answer the question at the end of Revelation 6, these are the ones who can stand. Who can stand with this coming judgment? Well, it's these that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. They've been made pure by the event that is summarized in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, how much of hymnody, of your hymn book, how many hymn books owe their lyrics to this profound phrasing? Think, are you washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Have you been freed from your burden of sin? You know it, right? There's power in the blood. There's power in the soul-cleansing blood 
of a lamb. Revelation 7.14 And him that he go together like peas and carrots. This lion of the tribe of Judah, think old covenant, is the lamb of the new covenant. Think new testament. The lamb that's worthy to open the scroll is opening it for all the believers. This vision is not jettisoned in chapter 7, where chapter 7, verse 4 mentions Jacob's or Israel's sons, Judah first. And then in chapter 7, verse 9, a great international multitude before the Lamb on a truer Palm Sunday than the one that we will talk about on March 28th, waving branches and shouting their salvation in heaven, which is now accomplished as had been applied to them by the slain land standing described in Revelation It's one chain, the chain of salvation. The lion will lie down with the lamb because our Savior is both a lion and a lamb. He's with us militant. He's with us triumphant. Can't you see it with your eyes of faith? Won't you trust Him today? Can you hear them now, faintly, overhead? Can you hear them singing? Singing about salvation. Singing, worthy are you, our God and King, to receive glory and honor and power. The church's one foundation is the foundation for all believers, old and new. We are all there because of the plan of God from the foundations of the world. And the final judgment seal will not be opened until the complete number of the spiritually sealed are brought into salvation. That's the message of Revelation 7. He won't lose one sealed person anymore. One of these seals will be left undone. And he will hold back final judgment until the full number of saints have God's name on their foreheads instead of the earth dwellers as man's description on their foreheads, which we do read about that mark later in Revelation. Alluding to Ezekiel 9.4, contrasting the mark of the beast, Revelation 13, with the mark of God, God's name written on our foreheads, chapter 14, verse 1, chapter 22, verse 4. The sealed saints, as we read about in Ephesians, and now read about in Revelation, chapter 7. Palm branches in ancient times were known for their celebratory feature. I hope you're here on Palm Sunday in just three short weeks because we have these branches that we get out and we wave and we sing, we sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, shout for God with a voice of triumph. Praise Him, praise Him. You know what I'm talking about. And we shout on a God with a voice of praise. Well, it's, just, it's really practice. I mean, it's meaningful, but it's practice. This is what heaven's like. And it, it's not this sort of faux militant conquest governmentally that we had in the first century when Jesus said clearly, my kingdom's not of this world. I mean, in fact, He kind of threw cold water on that whole thing when He rode in on a donkey, didn't He? All humble. And then he gets crucified a few days later. I mean, what Jesus did for the church militant was tell us how we would be triumphant. It's through the way of suffering. It's through waging war against our own sin, decrying injustices, taking our punishment on the chin, and knowing that immediately when we draw our last breath, we meet the Lord that has sealed us. You get that? You need that recalibration so badly. So badly. I need it. You need it. You need it badly. Lest you forget what it's like to be the church at war before we are the church at peace. Let's look in conclusion at the last verses of this text. It says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, 16, and 17. Therefore, these, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him, or they worship Him. Those words have similar connotations. Serve, worship, latreia. Think of Revelation, or Romans 12, 1, who we, we worship God. It's our living sacrifice. It's living sacrifices. That idea of worship is service. So these are the ones before the throne of God. And Levi is included in this list in the top part of Revelation 7. So we're, we're, we're serving, we're priestly, we're pure, we have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. Serving day and night, these that have come out of the tribulation after they've died. And, he's the, and, and he who sits on the throne will tabernacle them, he'll, he'll shelter them. 
He'll dwell with them, remembering the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering and reminiscent of God from the Exodus and being with his people in the wilderness. And you may remember talking about that a little bit earlier in the sermon, talking about Exodus 17 and how we should give honor to him and we shouldn't grumble and quarrel in this time and resort to violence. Look at verse 16. It says, they shall hunger no more. So this is a reversal of the fall of man. It's a reversal of sin. Right? No longer east of Eden. They're no longer going to hunger. They're not going to be thirsty anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why? Because the lamb is there. That's the big deal in heaven, is the Lamb. He's there in the midst of the throne. And you can say, like the saints of old, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my... He's the shepherd of the international multitude of the Israel of God, isn't he right here? You can say, the Lord is my shepherd. And what's he going to do? He's going to guide us to springs of living water, reminiscent of the shepherd, Psalm 23, What's he going to do for all of our emotional trauma and pain? Whatever we know about what's going on down here, what are we going to see? What are we going to have in effect? An ability in his presence to have no more tears. An ability for tears of pain to give way to tears of joy. What a wonderful, wonderful picture. I ask you today, are you trusting Are you trusting in him or in your ability to stand before him? Are you trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus? Are you trusting in your ability to keep yourself from falling away? Or are you trusting in the God who sealed you and the God who seals his servants? Have you ever trusted him before? Won't you trust him today? The Bible says that what you've earned for your trusting in yourself is eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord for those of you that will put your trust in him. You'll be clothed in white robes on that day. You won't have to hide yourself. You won't have to face eternal damnation for you will be a beautiful sheep counted and confirmed, sealed in God's kingdom. Won't you come in? Won't you come in? John ten twenty nine says, that no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hand. Won't you come in to the family through faith in Jesus Christ? Won't you become a part of this international multitude that Revelation talks about? Won't you be among those that can stand when the judgment of the Lord comes on all the rebels in the creation? Heaven goes silent in chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll look at that next week. But for now, let us consider this interlude and what it means to be the people of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we live for you and we die in you and we trust you. Help our unbelief. Steer us to right application. Help these people today, Lord, that have come in wounded by the world in which they live. Grant them some encouragement that if they'll just trust you, there's a brighter day coming. Strengthen those that are weak and provisionally wipe tears from the eyes of the weary. We want to commune with you. And we ask that you would help us even as we commune by taking your supper today. In Christ's name. Amen. In front of you, you may notice the elements that we use to take the Lord's Supper. If you'll very gently, if, if you are a baptized believer, walking with the Lord, if you'll very gently pull back the top, if you're not yet a believer, then watch this as a testament to that which you need to become. But pull back the top 
as believers and take the wafer off the top. Lord Jesus himself instituted his supper. Then he said on the night that he was betrayed, when his time of crucifixion was drawing near, so that we could be washed in the blood of the Lamb. He said on that night that he was betrayed at that meal, he said to his followers, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And so as we take this, we remember Christ's body broken as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You will peel back the next layer. On that same night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared the cup with his disciples. When he shared that cup, he explained what would happen to him, that his blood would be shed for the propitiation of the sins of his people. And so as we share this today, let us remember that though Christ did not sin. He took on sin for me and for you. We're now going to have the communion hymn sang and let us consider our communion with the Lord as we listen.
stand please and uh, Mark would you walk in just just for a moment right here yeah, go ahead and stand uh, Dan is sick today and Kurt is away our other two elders uh, laying to rest his grandmother in northern Indiana he can pray for them but we are here and we